Once we reach Genesis chapter 4, this sermon series is is going to move much more quickly. Uh, The first three chapters of Genesis, though, are, are foundational, not only to your entire Bible, but foundational to your entire life, uh, giving a foundation for understanding uh, of so much within and, and without. And we get a paramount understanding of this in these first three chapters. So if it's felt like you got onto the freeway at rush hour, you know, we're sitting here, that's kind of what, kind of what we're doing with, with Genesis chapter three. So we actually have Three more weeks. Uh, Three more weeks, including today, where we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Man has sinned, and we're looking now at God's reaction. This is what is happening in the latter half of chapter 3. What is God's reaction to the sin of Adam and Eve? And we're going to see, starting today, that He curses, He promises, and that He provides. We're going to look at the curse today. We're going to see God's reaction in administering a curse on all of creation. Uh, then next week on the 17th, we will look at God making a promise. And we'll, look, we'll, we'll, we'll focus in on chapter 3, verse 15. We're just going to move through that quickly today. But next week will just be chapter 3, verse 15. And then we'll look at the last part on Palm Sunday. Uh, the, the, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, we're going to look at how God provides and, and what that means at the end of chapter 3. Then, as Pastor Curtis mentioned, we're going to have Good Friday service. Then we will have Easter Sunday service. And then the following Sunday, that first Sunday in April, we'll begin Genesis chapter 4. So, excited about things to come. Uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you the main point of the sermon at the very beginning. So if you want to leave quickly, you can. You're going to get everything at the very start. I don't normally do that, right? It's the carrot I dangle out. So you sit here for three hours. But I'm going to give it to you right at the beginning. This would be like the thesis statement of this message. And, and I decided to do that because I want, I want this to be in the back of your mind as we're studying through it together. So I want you to know where we're going But I want you to have it in the back of your mind so that you can be mindful as we're studying through the verses that we're looking at today. So this is it. This is the this is the point that, Lord willing, we we pull we pull out today. I'll say it twice. God has made the fall felt through the curses that we may turn to him for relief and rescue. I'll say it one more time. God has made the fall felt through the curses that we may turn to Him for relief and rescue. So that's where we're headed. And first, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together today as your family, your sons, your daughters gathered now before your throne to worship you the way you've asked us to worship you. So we're here today and we're, we're singing to you and we're praying to you and we're hearing from you through the reading and the preaching of your word. We're going to do as you told us to do through Jesus and we're going to remember the cross through those symbols of the bread and the juice. We're going to look to 
you, God, and we're going to look to you through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, where your glorious grace was put on display in the greatest way. So, Lord, you know better than we know uh, what we have between us and you today. Uh, will you remove all of that, Lord? Uh, if, if we've got other things that we're bowing down to, other things that we're worshiping, other things that we're consumed with, things that are vying for our attention, uh, God, will you take those away? Uh, bring clarity and help us to understand things that are spiritually discerned. We pray that you would, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that the presence of, of you would be felt here in a powerful way in the midst of the preaching of your word. Help me to speak and preach well and help us all to listen well. And we pray this with all the confidence in the universe because we pray it in the name of your Son. The name of your Son who is Jesus, our Christ. Amen. First, a summary of what we've looked at so far. Catch us up. Let me read this. The man and the woman, the husband and the wife, were living the good life in the good garden under the good God. The serpent, or Satan, crept into the garden, undermined the man's leadership, and he tempted the woman to become like him. He told the woman that he was tempting her to, or luring her to become like God. But the truth is, is he wanted the woman and the man to become like him. Uh, sinful, rebellious, treacherous, and dead. Alienated from God. So he comes and he brings this temptation. Even Adam believed Satan. And in that moment when they believed Satan, of course they unbelieved God. What well, God, what you said, not true. Satan, what you say is true. Believed Satan, unbelieved God. They sinned. They went astray from God. They went astray from His Word. Immediately, everything changes. The eyes of them are, are both opened. Specifically, though, the eyes of them are both opened to the darkness that has made its way within to the rebellion and the sin and the evil and the wickedness that has made its way within. They see that there is something to be ashamed of that has come from within themselves. And that is that they have disobeyed God. The God who has been nothing but good and gracious and great to them, who has loved them, who has given them everything that they need, everything their hearts desired, has provided, is protecting. They have perfect, wonderful fellowship with this God. And in a moment, they exchange all of that and choose to side with their Lord's enemy. And that's ugly. That's ugly. And they're faced with that within. And so their reaction, as is always the reaction to sin, the fruit of sin, it's shame. So they're ashamed of what they have done, but they're also ashamed of who they have become. And so in reaction out of that shame, they do what we do, and they begin to hide themselves 
First, they try to hide themselves from one another. And then, foolishly, they try to hide themselves from God. And then God comes after them. And he has this gracious conversation beginning in verse 9. And I'll just read verses 9 through 13. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God comes looking for them in response to their sin. First reaction, hide. Second reaction, blame. Maybe we can get out of this. Maybe he won't find us behind this tree. God finds them. God begins to deal with them. There's no getting out of it at that point. They're exposed before God. So what's the next inclination of their wicked heart? It is to to blame. To try to shift responsibility. To claim that God made a mistake. uh, To claim that God is misunderstanding the situation. To do whatever they need to do to get out of any sort of uncomfortable feelings before God. It's already bad to escape any potential consequences, right? And this is what we continue to do. This is what we do as sinful people, sinful human beings. We hide and we blame. We hide and we blame. I hope we don't get caught. I hope I don't get caught, so I'm going to hide. I'm caught. Well, it wasn't my fault. We blame and we point the fingers and we try to pin this on someone else. So this account of what this first man and woman do, this is called, if you look at the heading in chapter 3 there, the fall. This is the fall of man. It's a, it's, a des, it's a descending. It's a going down. It's going from a good place to a bad place. From a good position to a, a bad position. Right? They have fallen from peace and harmony to a place of war now. To a, it's now a battleground. There was peace. There was harmony There now is not peace and harmony. They have fallen from bliss to misery. Bliss. Perfect happiness and joy. And now they're in a place of misery. As well, they've they've gone from fellowship to estrangement. There was fellowship with God. There was communion with God. Now there's estrangement from God. Now there's brokenness in their relationship with God. And this is the fallen world that you and I find ourselves in today. This is the fallen world that we find ourselves in that began when our very first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. And so if you read your Bible from cover to cover, well, you find that in the beginning, in the first two chapters, you, you have 
fellowship and you have peace and you have joy and you have bliss. And if you go to the last two chapters, you have fellowship and you have joy and you have bliss. You, you have creation in communion with God as He intended it. But in the, in the middle is where you and I find ourselves. And that all started right here in Genesis chapter 3. And the cause of all of this is sin. Sin in Adam, sin in Eve, sin in you, sin in me. And the truth is, is that we all know we live in a fallen world. All of us know this. We all know that there is something wrong with this world. I would say that we all regardless of our religious convictions, regardless of what we think about God, whether or not we even believe there is a God, most people secretly acknowledge that there is something wrong out there and there is something wrong in here. They may go as far to say if they deny the existence of God that we're not yet what we could be or not yet what we should be. Once we evolve even further and become even higher primates, we'll be an even better race and even better people. But we're not there yet. There's something wrong right now. And this is a universal, albeit secret, acknowledgement. We know that this world is not what it should be. We know there is something wrong. Now what we learned today is that the reason, the reason that we know this is because God has made the fall felt. He didn't allow Adam and Eve to sin and then to move forward with no change in life and no change in themselves and no change in the earth around them, right? He brings a curse. He brings consequences. And he brings these consequences so that the world that they lived in and the world that you and I live in on the way to when God will remake this earth and make a new heavens and a new earth, where it will be the consummation of what he started in those first two chapters, even better, no sin, no pain, no suffering. But on the way, on the way, God has made certain, through the curse, God has made certain that among every human being, the fall will be felt. We will know there is something wrong. In the beginning, God said, don't. And Adam and Eve basically said, don't tell me what to do. Which is still what we do. God says, don't. And we say, you're not the boss of me. He says, well, actually, I'm I'm God. (laughs) So that's a synonym for God is boss. So I actually can tell you what to do. But we... We resist that, just like Adam and Eve did. Don't. What did God say? Don't. Just don't. Very little don'ts in that garden. Do you remember? It was all do. 
Do, do, do. All of this is for you. It's for your pleasure. Enjoy yourselves. Here's a wife. Okay, have children. Have a family. Here's a garden. I'm going to come and walk with you. We'll take walks together. I mean, this is great. This is perfect. This is wonderful. This is just one little tree. You see this tree right here? Just don't eat the fruit of that tree. Just a little reminder here that you're not equal with me. I'm God. I'm in charge. I give you instructions. you got to obey them. Obey them. Things are going to go well. Don't obey them. It's going to be a disaster. But I'm not going to give you a lot of rules. You know, I'm not an, oppress- I'm not an oppressive God. <laughs> I'm just going to give you this one tree. Just stay away and don't eat this fruit. God said don't. And what did, what did they say? Don't, don't tell me what to do. I'll eat that fruit if I want to eat that fruit. It looks like good fruit. I like fruit. I want all the fruit. I'm going to eat that fruit. <laughs> You're not the boss of me. Isn't this still how we think? We read God's word. We read God's instruction. It's very plain what it says, but we don't want to do it. So we say, I don't think that's what it says. Really? It seems pretty clear. No, I found a commentator. Where did you find on Google? I Googled that verse. Well, okay. It's the heretic's paradise. You can find anything and anybody say anything on Google. But what are we looking for? We're looking for ways to, to, to disobey God, to dishonor God, to go our own way. So here's what God does. Here's one way of looking at the curse. God is going to impose consequences. He's going to introduce pain and suffering because of what they've done. Because he wants the fall to be felt. Another way that you can look at this is, is God is going to hand over. He's going to hand over Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, don't go this way. It won't go well. Okay. You want to go this way. You really want to go this way. I've told you you where this will go. If you eat of this fruit, you will, what did he say? You will surely die. Don't, Don't believe me. Okay, you're eating the fruit. You want to go that way. And so what does God do? What does God do with you? You challenge God. You resist God. You go your own way. You want to do what you want to do. Have you experienced this in your life? Are there not times where God doesn't restrain you? Are there not times where God pulls his hands and says, okay, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you have what you want. I'm going to let you move away from me. You really, you really think you're better off without me? You really think you're better off without me? I'm going to teach you through this. You're not better off without me. And God says, okay. And the way God does that here is through the curse. God makes the fall. What they had done, sin, God makes sin felt through the cursed, the curse. To be cursed means to be removed from blessing. Blessing and curse are opposites. You can't bless someone and and curse them at the same time. And when, when there is a curse in the Bible, what it means to be under a curse means that you have been taken from a place or taken from the sphere or taken of the position before God where there is ultimate blessing. And what Adam and Eve had before the curse was total and ultimate blessing. Now we know and we can see that God is gracious enough to us that he has not removed all joy. We are not totally cursed, obviously. Most of you have a smile on your face when you walked in here this morning. God has given us much to be joyful about. Believer or not, Christian or not, God is a God who is gracious commonly to all men, and He is blessed. But 
in the curse, what God does is he removes us from total blessing. That's first two chapters. That's last two chapters and the chapters yet to be written in eternity. That is total, utter blessing. But when we live, we are under the curse. We're under the curse as God is making our sin, is making the fall felt. There's a principle in your Bible called you, you reap what you sow. Okay, or, or the, 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 worldly, the worldly speak is you get what's coming to you. Right, we talk like that. Or karma. Okay, what the Bible says is you're going to reap what you sow. Okay, so what kinds of seeds are you sowing? Okay, what are you planting? Because that's what kind of tree are you planting? Because you're, you're going to get fruit that's in accordance with that tree. So if you're going to sin and disobey God and you're going to rebel God, it's not going to go well for you. I mean, think about what you're doing. You're putting yourself in opposition to the creator and sustainer of the universe. It doesn't sound like it's going to go well. And so when we do that, it doesn't go well because we're going to reap what we sow. And so God specifically causes them to reap what they've sown by announcing this curse on the serpent. We'll look at each of them. He starts with the serpent. Then he moves on to the woman. And then he moves on to the man. And because of man's sin, and we learn more about this in Romans 8, the ground itself is cursed. There's nothing left, by the way. So men are cursed in a specific way. Women are cursed in a specific way. The ground, the earth, in other words, is cursed. So when sin happened, and God said, okay, you want to go this way, this is going to be a cataclysmic catastrophe. It's going to affect everything. It will need to now be restored and rescued and redeemed. If you're going to go that way, the result is going to be this fallen world where, where sin has permeated everything. Sin has affected everything. Romans 8 said that God subjected the creation to futility. The creation. That means like the oceans, the mountains, okay, the soil, that everything on this earth has changed because of sin. Sin has made misery show up everywhere in you, in me, in the earth we live in. This is why there are natural disasters, for example. It says that the earth is in bondage and in corruption, Romans 8, and the earth itself is groaning. Groaning for what? The earth is groaning for that day when God makes the earth new. And consummates what began in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But until then, hand it over. John Calvin put it this way. Before the fall, the state of the world was a most fair and delightful mirror of the divine favor and paternal indulgence towards man. Now, in all the elements, we perceive that we are cursed. In other words, you don't need to read the Bible to know that you are cursed. Which is why people who aren't Christians, who don't read the Bible, will say things like, I feel like I'm cursed. And we would say, you are. (laughs) Got a verse. So we have looked at the the man and and the woman's sin. and, And now we're starting to see God's reaction. 
Remember we saw in this text I just read, verses 9 through 13, that first he comes and he, he patiently deals with them. He's merciful. I mean, you might expect God to just come down and say, okay, we're done. Gave this a shot. This isn't going well. I'll, I'll start over. Right? You were the beta version. Humanity 2.0. New planet. You might expect that God, and God does it. He comes and he starts asking questions. And he begins his dialogue with the man. What is he doing? He is being mercifully, mercifully patient with the man and the woman. And, and now we see further God's reaction to their sin. What, what, what else? Not just what does he say, what he's done at this point. But what is he what does he now do? And what we find in the curse is a mixture of judgment and mercy. You may have heard or, or, or think or believe that the curse is just strictly judgment. It is judgment. But the curse is it's a merciful curse. It is the merciful removing of blessing, which we'll see. Let's get started with the serpent. We'll go Satan, uh, the woman, and, and the man. And hopefully, one of the goals, right, is that we, we all leave feeling cursed. Aren't you glad you came? Don't you wish your phone didn't adjust to daylight savings? Now, here you are. All right, let's see if we can all feel the weight of the curse. First, beginning in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So real quick, there's there's been a discussion for a long time about what exactly happens here. And so I'll give them both to you. It doesn't have a lot of bearing on the doctrine that we're, or any on the doctrine that we're going to pull out of this. But the question is whether or not the serpent in the garden was Satan himself, which Romans 12 makes it, Revelation 12 makes it sound like because he's called the serpent, or whether the serpent was an agent of Satan that was sent and, you know, kind of Satan's puppet who's doing the, you know, the, the work of Satan in the garden. And so what is happening here is the serpent, as some, like James Boyce, believe that the serpent originally in the garden was probably this upright, obviously speaking, uh, beautiful creature. And now because of Satan's use of the serpent, he changes the form of the serpent to see what you see today when you see a a legless reptile that, oddly enough, most human beings are just innately fearful of. Kind of those weird, unexplainable things. Some of you aren't. Most of you are. So was this a new reality? Was this now the existence of a serpent as we know it today? Or or was the serpent already in existence and God here just gives it new significance? Kind of like the rainbow that probably existed, but it probably wasn't the first rainbow after Noah's Ark. But God said, now when you see my bow in the sky, it's going to mean this. So... Maybe that's what God is doing. Either way, what we see about the serpent who is or represents Satan is that he is now left to slither on the ground. And what does it say? You are are going to eat dust. 
all the days of your life. Literal and metaphorical. Okay, you see a snake slithering on the ground eating dust. Satan is going to eat dust. We know what that means. We know that expression, eat my dust. And what do we mean? Defeat, right? This is saying, Satan, you'll be defeated. The next verse, God gives more insight. How? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he says a couple things here. First, he says there will be a war between uh, Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring, the woman's offspring. Okay, there is going to be enmity between them. There's going to be war between them. There's going to be war and strife between the children of God and the children of Satan. This is certainly true today. Okay, those who love and honor and obey God will not be aligned with those who love, honor, and obey Satan. Those who serve God will be opposed to those who serve Satan. Those who serve Satan will be opposed to those who serve God. So there's going to be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. But then, but then he talks about not just offspring in general, but a particular offspring when he says he. He shall, to Satan, bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A day is coming, is what God is saying. And next week we are just on this verse. So we're going to talk a lot more about this is huge. But here he says, a day is coming when a particular offspring of this woman, in other words, a man. A day is coming when a man will come to war with Satan himself. And he will be victorious, as some of your translations say, by crushing your head. There's going to be a battle. You will crush his heel. But he is going to crush your head. Would you rather get hit in the heel or in the head? I'll take the heel shot. The decisive blow was struck by the perfect offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. That's all we'll say about that today. But that is what this is saying. The decisive blow was struck. Here he's saying will be struck. It was struck by the perfect offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. Jesus came and Satan and Jesus did battle and Satan crushed his Heal. He inspired man to crucify Christ on the cross to drive nails through his hands and through his feet. But in doing what he thought was victory over Jesus, what was actually happening is Jesus was rendering a death blow to Satan's head. So the cross looked like to Satan victory. I have won. It's great. And actually it was defeat. Because as Acts 2 and Acts 4 said, he was doing, and Pontius Pilate was doing, and the centurions were doing, and those who yelled, crucify him, were doing what God's 
plan had predestined should take place. They played right into his hand. He accomplished the redemption of sinners. You should ask a question at this point. So if you're not, I'm going to ask it for you. And we're going to talk about the curse. We're going to talk about uh, the consequence of sin. We're going to talk about the, the pain and the suffering and the horror that, that we feel in this world today. And so I've asked myself, and you may ask yourself, why didn't God wipe Satan out right then? Why allow Satan to ravage this world for at least millenniums now? Why not just come down right here and take Satan out and not let this go any further and no more misery, no more pain, no more suffering. And now we've, now we've piled up is the history of mankind. We've piled up a lot of tears and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And it it would seem, wouldn't it, when you read this, that couldn't that have all been avoided if God would have just ended Satan there? I mean, why is God being patient with Satan? Why is God putting this off? Why hasn't God, you know, completely ended him now? It says he will put him into the lake of fire eventually and he will do no more harm. So why isn't God doing that right now? And people have tried to answer that question a lot of different ways. One of the most common answers is that God can't. Maybe that's the answer people have said. Maybe God and, and war or God and Satan are, are uh, there. There's equity and and we don't really. We're not really sure. It's taking a while, and we hope God's going to win, and He says He's going to, and we're, we're banking on that, but it's going to take a long time. And God's just not quite powerful enough to overcome Satan. Or others will say this. Others will say that, well, the evil and the suffering, this is all a necessary byproduct of free will. That, well, God, has, God wants to give us this power to to do whatever we want to do and to not be driven by inclination or our wants or our desires. And he's given us this power of choice. And whenever you make a decision, you could have done something else just as easily. And if you're going to give people that kind of choice, just a necessary byproduct is people are going to use that for, for evil. And so the answer has been that, well, there's evil in the world because it's a byproduct of free will, which means that God prizes and loves free will so much that he preserves it by allowing this world to be torn apart. In my opinion, a terrible explanation. Now, both of those completely unfounded in the Bible, most importantly. Nowhere to get those in the Bible. I mean, we cannot say that God is not in control. I mean, if you pick and pull certain verses like John 12, where Satan is the ruler of this world, and 1 Peter 5, 8, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. It sounds like he is... The ruler of this world. It sounds like he is not on a leash. It sounds like he's a lion. And oh, what am I going to do? And where is he? And he's everywhere. And he's out to get us. And I hope God can figure something out. And I hope God can help me. But then you have verses, right? You got to keep reading. Then you have verses that says that, that nothing, like in Psalm 33, that says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. 
That means that nothing happens apart from God's will. Or when Satan prowls around like a roaring lion and he causes people to suffer and brings real suffering into your life and my life. But then we know in 1 Peter 3 that when we suffer, we suffer because God wills us to suffer. Satan is under the sway of God. Satan is under the dominion of God. Satan is is on a leash and God holds the end of the leash. You see this clearly in Job where, where Satan cannot touch. He cannot lay a finger on Job unless God the Father gives him permission. He is restricted in what he can do, how far that he can go. Here's a more biblical answer. Why? Why is God stretching this out? Why not just end Satan now? It may not be as specific as you like, but here's what we have from the Bible. God permitted Satan's fall and permits his wickedness now, not because he is powerless to stop it. That's the negative answer. Not because he is powerless to stop it, but because he has a purpose for it. But because he has a purpose for it. Satan has been allowed to ravage this world and to ravage your life. I know. And he has been permitted to do that, not because God is powerless to stop him, but because God has a great purpose in allowing him to do it. We can get more specific with verses like Colossians 1, 16, or Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 as to what are these purposes of God. For by him, all things, were, this is Jesus, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through, let me just put Jesus for him. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. That means, and couple this with Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, that says, here's, here's where God is going. Here's where God is moving. God is, this is a theater, as Calvin said, for God's glory. God is displaying His beauty and His glory. So the purpose in all things is that God would be magnified, that God would be glorified, that God would be worshipped, that we would see Him in all His splendor and know how great and good and gracious God is. And the place where you see God at His greatest is the cross. That's why all of that, the cross, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, is for and to the praise of His glorious grace. Because on the cross you see God's justice and you see God's mercy. Two things that you do not think are compatible. They come together on the cross. It's beautiful. It is the greatest display of glory the world has ever, ever seen. So why did God not snuff Satan out? Why does God allow him time to ravage? Why is God so long-suffering and patient? Well, we know this. We know that that fits in with God's purpose to display the glory of Christ. And if we want to get more personal, if you're a Christian, you can take Romans 8.28 and you can apply it to your heart. And you can say that in all things, including God giving Satan permission 
to bring pain and suffering into your life that I don't want to belittle. And yet in all things, God is working together for the good of those who love Him. So it's sort of a mantra here. Everything in your life, it is for His glory and for our good. Everything for our glory and for His good. John Piper said it better. Jesus Christ will be more highly honored in the end because He defeats Satan through long-suffering, patience, humility, servanthood, suffering, and death, rather than through raw power. And the more highly honored the Son is, the greater the joy of those who love Him. We would not know Him in the fullness of His glory if He had not defeated Satan in the way He did. That's good purpose. That's good reason that you can bank on even when everything in you feels different. Imagine if you're Adam and Eve at this point watching what's going down with Satan. They're all together, you know. I mean, this is, this is like a courtroom in Genesis 3. God turns to Satan. Then he's going to turn to the woman. He's going to turn to the man. Imagine what Adam and Eve are expecting is going to happen to them. I mean, they hear that death is coming. Satan's getting crushed. I want you to see mercy in the curse. God does not end them the way he ends Satan. God does not prophesy their eternal damnation the way he does Satan. He comes to them again graciously. The serpent, no hope. No hope. Right? Serpent, Satan, here's God's curse. No hope. No room for hope. Man and the woman, very different. Very different. Hope. Start with the woman. The woman is cursed. What does God say to her? A few things. First. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. I I bet we have women here today who can testify to that and say, true. I have experienced the curse. Here's what's interesting for the woman and the man. Here with the woman, the curse strikes at the center of a woman's femininity. You're going to see that. How is she cursed? She's cursed. Where is she going to feel pain and suffering? Where is difficulty introduced into her life? It is in regards to her relationship with her children and with her husband. In other words, pain is introduced into the woman's area of primary responsibility her home her home remember God has built and designed a woman when she's married when she has children she can minister in that home and she can cultivate things in that home that no one else can she's been designed and called by God to love her husband and to love her children and to help her husband and to raise her children up in the truth of the Lord 
And no one can do that the way mom can because she's been designed to do that. That's why the older women in Titus are encouraged to draw alongside the younger women. And what are they to teach the younger women? How to love their husbands and children. Because there's not a higher calling. And where does the curse? Where does difficulty? Where will she feel the fall? In that area of primary responsibility, her home. Men and women, remember, are created in the image of God to bear his image in unique ways individually and collectively in marriage as they complement one another through headship and helpership. Right? Man, male and female. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Created in the image of God. Men, you bear the image of God. You reflect the image of God. God, when he made you a man, has made you a certain way, designed you a certain way, and we can see beauty and glory of God as you bear his image. Women, God has made you very different. You also bear his image, but in unique and distinct ways. Now, you bring them together and something extraordinarily beautiful as they complement one another as a husband and wife. And he, like Jesus, loves her the way Jesus loves the church. And she, like the church, respects him the way the church respects Jesus. And they have this beautiful, complementary relationship that displays and images God to the created world. But now that image is going to be marred. And it's going to be difficult. And it's not going to come easy. And it's not going to be painless. And if you read carefully, if you read carefully the account of the fall and how this went down, it was preceded, wasn't it? By role reversal. You'll see that that's what Adam's going to be judged on. Adam, your head. Eve, your helper. Adam, you lead. I want you out in front. I want you to protect her. I want you to provide for her. I want you to love her. I want you to sacrifice for her. Eve, I want you to respond to his initiative. I want you to help him in the ways that I've gifted you to help him. I want you to serve him and respect him and honor him. And what happened before the the fruit was eaten? Adam stepped back and said, this is awfully hard. She's a smart cow. She'll be okay. He abdicates. She usurps. The fall is preceded by role reversal. And then when God brings consequence... When God brings the curse, it strikes precisely at their image-bearing tasks. Eve, you women, you're to love your husband, you're to love your children. That's going to be difficult. Men, you're to provide for your families, you're to lead your families. We're going to see, men, it's going to be difficult. It will not come easy. You will be reminded of your dependence on God. As well, this implies childbearing and child-rearing. This is, this is not just pain in giving birth to children, but in pain you shall bring forth children. So this is the, the bearing of children and the rearing of children. God is saying that being a mother here, being a mother will be difficult and painful. And some of you say that, you'll hear things in the curse here, um, especially some of you women may be tempted to say, well, I'm not a wife, and I'm not a mother, I've never been a wife, I've never been a mother, and therefore I do not feel the effects of this curse. No, you do. You do. Because you had a mom who felt the effects of this curse. 
And some of you saw this curse playing out and the difficulty playing out and the pain playing out in your mom and then how she related to you. And it has changed your life forever. Or you've seen it in friends, you've seen it in sisters, you've seen it in your church, and your whole world is a world that has been under this curse for all of history. But being a mother, he is saying, will be difficult and painful. Not just difficult and painful. God's design is not gone. Children are and will be, as all of you moms who are here, they will be a delight. And they will be a joy. But in your motherhood, moms, am I right? The fall will be felt. When she is giving birth to that child, she's going to want some drugs. <laughs> it was painful. My wife has had four children. I have given up the right to ever say in our home, this hurts. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and so they have, right? They have these legalized drug dealers that push carts around and give these gals epidurals to help, help ease the pain and the suffering. We loved our anesthesiologists. We just loved them. My third son was almost named after, I kid you not, our anesthesiologist. Jackson was almost Arnie. I like Jackson. Moms, isn't this true that Giving birth to your children is painful, but raising your children, watching them make poor decisions, seeing them get sick, watching them lose their jobs, their life not go well. Is it not painful not only to bear children, but to bring forth children and God says from the beginning she mom her attachment to these children will be so great and her love for these children will be so great that she she will agonize over them like no one else on the planet and she will worry about them like no one else on the planet it will be a place of joy delight but it will be a place where she is going to feel the hurt moms is this not true this began in Genesis chapter 3 what about her relationship to her husband your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you this says what we might not think it says when it says your desire shall be for your husband this doesn't mean an attraction this doesn't mean that Eve wasn't Desiring her husband, and then after the curse, she found him attractive. That'd be sweet. But that's not, what a great result of sin. That's not what this is saying. When it says that, you know, she will have this, this new desire, it's a very rare phrase in your Old Testament, and it shows up in the very next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 7. Let me read it to you. God is talking to Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see how it even sounds the same? When you look at the Hebrew, it's the exact same words. This is what he's saying to the woman. 
As sin hopes to rule over Cain, so a wife will hope to rule over her husband. Just got quiet. And so, as a result of the curse, a wife will he'll have a husband... And this husband will be prone to certain sins, and then she'll be prone to certain sins in reaction. He will be prone to things like laziness, as I am. He will be prone to things like passivity, as I am. And her inclination is to say, you know what, why don't you just sit down and I'll take over. Her desire will be to rule over her husband. And his reaction, but he will rule over you. He'll often dominate chauvinism, two evils, don't make a right. But her desire will be to rule over her husband. Many of you women have probably felt this welling up within, whether your husbands are doing well or not, a desire to move them in the direction that you want to move them, a desire to control them, a desire to push them, a desire to direct them. And women are they're also very good at this. Some may do it overtly. Maybe some of you, maybe you know some, maybe your parents. There was nothing subtle about mom wearing the pants. Maybe it was just overt. It was just, I got this, husband. Just sit down, I'll put on some cartoons for you. Here's some jello. I'll, I'll take care of life. <laughs> right? You've seen that. And he's just walking behind her with her purse. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. But many, many wives, it's much more, it's much more subtle. And so I, I do want to just address it briefly and then make a getaway. <laughs> For some wives, it, it might be more subtle though, because I want you to see how this curse can work out. I want you to see this desire to rule over your husband. For some women, it's overt. For some, they're like SEAL Team 6. He doesn't even know it's happening. He thinks, yeah, I'm in charge, and I wear the pants, and, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm the head of my household, and she's back there going, no, he's not. <laughs> he does whatever I want him to do. Well, how does she do that? Well, there's other things that some of you gals might find that you're naturally good at, and you've figured out ways to, to use abilities that you have as a woman to manipulate a husband. And so many wives will do this through nagging, for example. Hey, so you, you, it's interesting, right? I'm not saying all you gals do this. But you won't see a lot of guys nagging one another. But you will see gals nag their husband. Did you do this? Uh, no, I didn't do that. What, right, what's nagging? A few minutes later, did you do it? Uh, no. No. <laughs> it's been, been 30 seconds. <laughs> the next day, hey, did you do it? Uh, no. I mean, now, what's happening, what's happening in him now? He, is, he doesn't like this. He doesn't enjoy this. She knows he doesn't enjoy this. Now, eventually, what does he do? He does exactly what she wants him to do. Now, is he doing it because he's taking initiative in the relationship? No, he's doing it so that she won't nag him. It, it can be manipulation. Well, I know if I keep asking him and asking him, finally he'll do it. It's a way of taking initiative and ruling over and leading her husband. Some wives will withhold affection. You know how us men are wired. You know we love affection. And so a wife will withhold affection. Oh, really? You're going to go that way. You're going to make that decision. 
or you're not going to listen to my counsel. Okay, I'm going to bed. See you tomorrow. Or maybe she'll grow cold. Or there's, a, there's that expression, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. There, there is a way, gals, you need to know this. Gals, you, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Women radiate in ways that men do not radiate. And the Bible gets into this with head coverings. It's really interesting. But women, you, you radiate in ways that men do not radiate. You can walk into a room and change a room, and men cannot do that. And you can change the tone of your entire home. And you women have been, I would say, empowered by God to use this to, for either good or evil in your home, to build your house or to tear it down. And you can set the tone of your home. And you can do that by using emotions for the worst. And women can use emotions and, 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 and wives can manipulate. And if I act this way or if I, if I do this or if I'll get angry and if that doesn't work and then I'll, and then I'll cry and then I'll be sad. And, and it can all be subtle manipulation. Women, do you see the curse playing out in your life? Just evaluate. Evaluate yourself. Do you, do you see this? Do you experience this pain and childbearing and bringing forth children? And do you see this within you? Do you see this desire to rule over your husband just as sin wanted to rule over Cain? And be careful. Be careful and evaluate this. He moves on to the man. Uh, guys, I think we get out a little, a little better here. Here's what he says. Because you... Because you have listened, he turns to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So let me say first, men, listen to your wife. This is not saying that the cardinal sin that Adam committed was listening to your wife. God is not saying, I gave you this command, do not listen to her, she's crazy. You listen to her, and now you're in a big mess. That's, it's not that kind of a general statement. Proverbs 14, list, men, listen to your wives. If you are smart and wise, you will listen to your wives. Proverbs 14, 1, right? She, there's the wise woman, she builds her house. You want to listen to the woman that is, is building your house, not physically, right? metaphorically, who is building your home. You want to listen to her. Proverbs 19 says that a prudent wife is from the Lord. She is wise and she is from the Lord and she is a resource to you and she is invaluable to you and you should listen to her often. We've covered this. Proverbs 31, I mean, this excellent wife. You want to listen to her. But here's what Adam did. Adam listened to his wife the way Abraham Listen to his wife when she suggested that he sleep with their maidservant, Hagar, to fulfill God's blessing. In fact, the same words are used in Genesis 16 when it describes how Abraham listened to his wife, when it talks about how Adam listened to his wife. So what God is saying here is that the problem, Adam, is that you were not leading. You were not leading. You should not have listened to your wife when she looked at you and said, eat this fruit. You should have said, no, 
God said, if we eat of that fruit, we will surely die. In fact, you should have been out in front of her, between her and the enemy, making sure it never got to this point. But you didn't do that. Instead, you took a back seat. You put your wife out in front. You let her take all the shots. And then you just kind of followed along. And then when I came looking for you, you blamed her and tried to pin it on her and on me. So he's saying that the the, the foremost sin that Adam committed was not being a good head of his home. That was the foundational sin of the fall of mankind. He did not lead his family the way he should. Rather, Eve took initiative and he followed when he should have taken initiative and she should have followed. Because of that, cursed is the ground. Because of Adam's sin, the whole earth, the whole earth is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And to dust, uh, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, as with Eve, so with Adam, pain is introduced into the man's primary area of responsibility which men is not the home it is the marketplace so men we love our home and we love our family and we love our wives and we love our children one of the primary ways we do that is by going out and allowing our wives and as mothers to minister to our family we go out and we provide resources for her to do the job that god has given her to do and so we're to go out which is why paul says in timothy anyone who does not provide for the needs of his family has denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. So what happens? This is man's primary area of responsibility. For Adam, it was a farmer. We don't have a lot of farmers here, I suspect. Adam was a farmer. It was not going to come easy. Thorns. By the sweat of your brow. While we're not farmers, I assume we all experience this in one way or another. Men, we could say that Providing for our family is a difficult endeavor. Computers crash. That's your thorn. Computers crash, right? The tools break. The bosses are unreasonable. Employees don't show up on time. People are lazy. And then here's what's interesting. God says, this is going to be your curse. Man, you are to provide for your family. Adam, get out there. And the reason, even why you're not a farmer, is why your work is difficult and providing for your family is difficult is because foundationally the earth does not give up anything easy. So everything is going to be a struggle and a fight and a battle. And this is going to be difficult for us, men. And we're going to be reminded of the fall. We're going to be reminded of our sin. The fall will be felt. And this is when God says, look at the text. When does God say that there will be relief from this curse of work? When you die. When you die. By the sweat of your brow. But, but don't worry, there's, there's an end. When you return to the ground. <laughs> not until then. And to clarify, work is not a curse. That's not what this is saying. Some men will, will use this to say, see, work is something we shouldn't do. And work is something we should, right, we're, we're crafty. <laughs> work is something we should resist. And, and, and that's why the goal, right, the goal is to get to a day where I no longer have to what? Work. Man, if, you're, if your retirement plan is getting to a day where you no longer have to work, you need a new retirement plan. 
You should work until you're dirt. <laughs> we work. When does work show up? Work does not show up in the fall. Work shows up in Genesis chapter 2. So we are to be working hard. This is the work that God has given us to do. And the work is actually a blessing. Work is not a curse. Work is cursed. But work itself is not a curse. A concluding question. And I answered it in the opening statement, but I'll ask it again. Why? I hope it's clear. But now why has God made the fall felt? Why has God made it this way? Why has, why has God made it such a struggle for you moms and a struggle for you husbands and wives and men and women? And, and why natural disaster? Why an earth that's cursed? And, and why everything groaning and crying out? Why are things miserable the, 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 the way that they are? Why has God made it so that we feel the fall and feel the weight of sin? I'm sure you can answer that. God has made it so that we would feel the fall, so that we would cry out to God for relief and rescue. Friends, you need God. You need Him for relief and you need Him for rescue. And if it wasn't for the curse, you just might think you don't need Him. And God has handed us over and God has removed blessing and God has introduced pain into our lives and God has introduced consequences into our lives. And you will either shake your fist at God because of them or you will raise your arms to God because of them and in them. And so the mom who is feeling this and who is feeling the pain and and it feels unbearable and her kids aren't going the way that she wanted them to go and they're not living the way that she hoped they would live and there's, there's this agony, she will be tempted to shake her fist at God. And you see that this is how many women, for example, respond. She will either shake her fist at God and say, I deserved better, or I'm entitled to better, or I can't believe that you've done this. Or she will raise her arms to God and say, help me, help me, save me, rescue me, which is why she is saved through childbearing. Help me, rescue me, give me relief. I cannot do this without you. I need you. I'm dependent on you. Only you can save me. Only you can rescue me. And when we live in this world of tragedy and we live in this world of horror and we experience the curse from these consequences within or without in this whole world that has been handed over to and subjected to futility, we should be caused to cry out to God and long for God and reach our arms to God and say, come quickly and help us and rescue us and enable us and empower us. God, we need you. This is the proper response to the curse. But some will shake their fist at God. And for those who do not believe, and friends, you need to hear this, for those who do not believe, the curse is a foretaste of hell. The curse is a foretaste of hell. 
The pain and the suffering that is experienced in this life is a foretaste of the pain and the suffering that will come from a life that is chosen to be alienated from the God who loves you. It will not get better. It will get worse. If you're a believer, it will only get better. If you do not know Jesus, this cursed world is as good as it gets. If you are a believer in this cursed world, you know it only gets better. So for those of us who believe, for those of us who will believe, who will cast ourselves on Jesus and turn to him and respond properly to the fall that we feel and cry out for relief and cry out for rescue, the fall and the curse does not serve as a foretaste of hell. The curse, the pain, the suffering, it serves to well up in us greater affection for God and greater gratitude to God. I love you. And isn't this the testimony of every Christian who has lived to hell and back? To say it was in those darkest moments and in those darkest seasons where I grew to love Jesus most. That is the faithful one who has suffered. That is their testimony. Always. No one ever says, I grew to love Jesus the most when everything was just going great. No one. So it is God's love for you, friend. God's mercy for you. That you live in a world that is cursed and groaning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you've poured out on each and every one of us. God, I'm sure in this room we have people who love you and, and people who don't love you, people who, uh, who know you, people who, who don't know you, uh, people who are angry with you, and people who are loving you. God, I pray that we would all be mindful right now of how much grace, how much undeserved favor and gift you've poured out on all of us. That we would know that we are as sinful as you say that we are. That we are that wicked. That we are that prone to wander. That we, we do not seek after you the way we ought. And we are therefore deserving of nothing good in this good world that you have made. And yet you have given us good things. You've given us children and you've given us sunshine. And you've given us rain and shelter and food and taste buds and water. You've been good to us, God. And Lord, I pray that you, as you bring your gospel, truth, your good news of your salvation and your rescue that you provide through your substitute, Jesus Christ, come to die in our place. I pray that we would find ourselves hopeless until we hear this news and that this news would turn people's heart toward you now. For those of us who have believed and who believe, uh, turn our hearts afresh to you and give us joy and happiness and peace that will only be found to the degree to which we know you and love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. 
For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.